we need Julian Assange. And one thing I want to say to you today is, it is not only that he is the victim of torture, it is not only that his life is at stake, it is not only we will to save him from a dreadful injustice, we also want to save him because the world needs Julian Assange as a symbol and fighter for liberty. Okay, that was Anton Karras from The Third Man, as if you don't know that by now, and uh, my good friend, uh, Craig Murray. That was Craig Murray from a speech he gave at St. Pancras Church in Old Church in London back in November. He has subsequently given another speech there with George Galloway, February 25th, I believe. But the, that speech, that he gave at the top. We're gonna to play more of that because uh, we're going to talk to him about that in a special Assange Countdown to Freedom that we have today. And that is with Craig Murray and his wife, Nadira Murray, the great filmmaker, the award-winning filmmaker. They will be our guests today and that's it. Just those two. So um, this is gonna be a great show, it really is. I'm very excited about uh, having those two on together and something that we've never done before. I've never interviewed two people at the same time, particularly for this series. I usually have one and then the other, but we're gonna do them both at the same time and it will be on video. You're listening to the audio now, but it will be on video in the coming days and you don't wanna miss that uh, because seeing those two together was unbelievable. It was, I sound like Trump, it was unbelievable, but it, was, it really was very, it was special. That's all I can tell you. And uh, this is Randy Critical, by the way, and this is Assange Countdown to Freedom. I'm in New York City. I'm out in Brooklyn. Uh, of course, I'm in a lockdown situation. So I record from here through uh, my producer and director, uh, Kelly Lane, who's in North Carolina. And if you hear a little sound here and there, uh, it's, it's just uh, an email dropping in uh, because I'm not in a studio. We're doing this in a way where I'm in New York. Kelly Lane, uh, who's uh, conducting this entire affair, is in North Carolina. When we're finished, we give it to um, Jimmy Sunderland in Lake Arrowhead, California, which is 15 miles from where I grew up. And then all of the sound clips that you hear are from anonymous Scandinavia, all right, out of Denmark. That crew there, they provide all, they, you know, they, when you hear these sound clips, you'll see that they, uh, kind of fade. Well, I give them the music, they take it and they fade it down and then they send it back. And uh, a lot of the um, video clips that we turn into audio clips, like Craig Murray speaking today, that is anonymous Scandinavia doing that uh, work. All right, so look, um, I, you know, I don't like to ever ask for donations. In fact, maybe I won't right now, but I'm going to, if you would like to support this show, 
we, we are going, this is our fourth year. We've never made any money. We've lost money uh, doing this. We've lost jobs doing this. Uh, but, um, you know, we, we have a lot of uh, parts to this and uh, we have a, a new website. We just went from one website to the next. And we'd like to do this every week. So if you, if you like this show, if you want to help us out and continue this show, you can uh, just go to AssangeCountdownToFreedom.com. That's AssangeCountdownToFreedom, just spell it out, .com. If you'd like to help, uh, we'd like to continue. And uh, yeah, I'm very dedicated to this. I've been doing it. This is our fourth season. We've done about 60 shows. This is the 15th this year alone. And we want to just keep going on. And uh, we're not looking to make any money. We're looking just to underwrite our expenses here. So that's Assange Countdown to Freedom.com. As I said, uh, we have a, a tremendous show today, uh, two great guests, and they live together. They're married. That is uh, Craig Murray, the former um, ambassador from the UK to Uzbekistan, and Nadira Murray, the uh, filmmaker, uh, the uh, director, actress, uh, who is from Uzbekistan, uh, and uh, she's really a, a very special individual. So we have those two together, and then that's it. Okay, so uh, we're going to go to um, a little bit of music, and we'll come back. On the other side, we will begin our uh, interview with uh, Nadira and Craig Moore. This is Randy Credico, Randy Credico Live on the Fly, Assange Countdown to Freedom, episode 15. I can't believe it's episode 15. And uh, we are being joined right now, very special show, um, very special show uh, with um, the same people at the same time. I've never done this, folks, um, but we have one of my regular guests, Craig Murray, and someone I've only interviewed once at KPFA with Dennis Bernstein, and that is Nadira Murray. And they join us out of their home in Edinburgh. Uh, welcome to both of you, Craig and Nadira. Hello, Randy. Nice to see you. Yes, it's so great to see you as well. You guys look fantastic. <laughs> Thank you. You guys look fantastic. This is it, man. This is, you know, they have Americans couple. This is Scotland's <laughs> couple right here. So, so um, we are unusual couple, but not sure about Scottish mood, but got we it. are unusual. <laughs> well, there you are in Edinburgh, the two of you, uh, in your new home, right? You last time I was there, the only time I was there was in a flat in downtown Edinburgh 
where you made this delicious meal called Plav. Mm -hmm. Plav. You're from Uzbekistan, and I yeah. read this book here. Here's this book here, as you can see. I learned about Plav because this is by Craig Murray. It's murder in Samarkand. And he talks about Plav all the way through it. All right. Yeah. All of these like mysterious and escapades and everything in, in um, Uzbekistan. I learned about Plav. And when I went to, I, I was dying for it. And it's my favorite dish. It really okay. is. All right. So at any rate, it's great to have you. You guys are, are um, under not house arrest, but you are uh, not quarantined, but you are under orders, whatever, that you have to stay in. You are definitely uh, locked down. Mm. Yep. Is it citywide? Is it countrywide? Is it UK-wide? Lockdown. It's UK-wide, basically. Um, you're allowed to go out, uh, you know, to go buy food at the shop. Um, you're allowed out half an hour a day for exercise. Uh, Are you serious? That, you have to stay in your house. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Every day you're allowed to bicycle or run. So just w by yourself, not as a group. So as for a half an hour, and that's it. Half an hour. Are you sure half an hour? Yeah, half an okay. hour. I don't know. I mean, I, I, anyway, I go for a run only 30 minutes. Well, yeah, you both look great. I mean, you know, people here, uh, I'm in Brooklyn, and there's a liquor store down the street, which is open. Liquor stores are essential businesses in uh, the state of New York or in the country. They didn't close. They closed down the bars, but the liquor stores, the pharmacies, and um, and some supermarkets are open, but uh, is it the same there? We have uh, supermarkets are open, pharmacies are open, pharmacies and pet shops are open. Oh, really? Yeah, pet shops are open because uh, we have cats. We have three cats, so um, and that's it we don't everything is else so you, closed. Can, you can still get alcohol it's quite quite strange because there have been a lot of tales of panic buying um being shown with you know shops running out of things here in scotland there's been very little panic buying the only panic buying's been alcohol <laughs> well i understand that because it's it's got a, a twofold uh, utility you know you can uh, get drunk with it and go to sleep or you can use it for medicinal purposes right <laughs> and the toilet paper panic buy i don't know why but yes toilet yeah, so that's <laughs> that's universal <laughs> but uh, people are i think are drinking a lot more these days uh, it's a good time uh, if you're uh, <laughs> a shopkeeper of alcohol, but not not a bar, of course. Um, so, but you're you're doing okay. Your your son is is your your um, yeah. He being schooled right now. Uh, no, he tomorrow we're gonna start schooling. Uh, so we have a homeschooling. Uh, we were on holiday for two weeks for the uh, Easter holiday. We had an Easter holiday. So tomorrow this is gonna finish. From tomorrow we're gonna carry on our homeschooling. So. <clears throat> from morning till we start schooling 10 o'clock 10 a.m and we finish around 4 15 yeah, the schools and are all closed the schools are closed but they are giving um online they're giving the materials for kids right. and we follow uh the teachers the materials from the school we, they send um craig does math and a couple of other things but i do um, literature and storytelling and 
arts and sports. I, I do that with, Cap, with our son. Craig does with math and some bit of spelling as well. So that's, that's good that, uh, you know, you, you're occupied during the day. I know Craig has been uh, very prolific uh, writing. He was at this trial of some uh, former MP in the Scottish legislature, uh, I think, or maybe in, in the UK uh, House Commons, but we'll get to that in a minute. But you've been very prolific. You've been on top of things uh, politically. Uh, this is Assange's countdown to freedom. Um, and I'm thinking, you know, here we are ensconced in, in, in this environment. Now, I can go out, and I do. I'll go out and smoke a cigar. Uh, but, you, there's, you know, you're supposed to stay in. And, and it's, it's kind of, you know, it, it, it psychs me out. I do have cabin fever. I do go stir crazy. So I'm thinking... My God, it's nothing compared to what Julian Assange went through for seven years in that embassy and then uh, now in Balmoris for one year as of Saturday. I mean, can you imagine that being stuck? Now I have a little, I can identify with it a little more, even though the restrictions are not nearly as stringent. Uh, and just bouncing back and forth in those two rooms in, in, in the Ecuadorian embassy. You ever think about that? Yeah, yeah, and they've been thinking about it. Um, and of course, you know, his conditions have been much worse. And, and now they're, they're, they're really much worse. I mean, his conditions in Belmarsh have just been awful in that he's not been given access to computers. He's been, you know, he's been locked in to a cell for 23 hours a day with no access to reading material. They weren't even letting him have books and things. Uh, oh, you got to be kidding me. No, he, he absolutely was. Uh, and this is what makes it a form of mental torture in many ways. You know, he's been very, very, very restricted. Uh, hundreds, if not thousands of people have been writing him letters which don't get to him. They, they disappear somewhere in the prison system. Um, it, you know, his conditions have really been very harsh. And of course, above all, he's not allowed his court papers. He's not allowed to prepare his legal case. So, um, you know, the conditions of his, uh, of his imprisonment are really very unpleasant. And it should be said, I mean, Belmarsh is where they send the very worst terrorists, people who've right. been involved in, um, you know, uh, in plots to kill hundreds of people. But that, that's the kind of establishment it is. And, and what, what on earth a publisher is doing in there, uh, it, you know, it's quite extraordinary, absolutely extraordinary. Well, you, you've known him for a long time, Craig. In fact, uh, I had Ray McGovern on the other day. He said that uh, you and uh, Daniel Ellsberg gave him the award, uh, that uh, you gave him your award, and, and he and Ray McGovern <laughs> like, uh, gave you another one uh, to him back in 2010. You were there. And so you've known him for a long time. And Adira, I know you've been in the embassy uh, several times, and you've gotten to know him. Uh, and so what, what is it when, when you see what he is going through? As someone that you know, and you, and I know you have stories about. I want to hear some of the stories, some of the personal stories. Uh, what is it when you when you know what he's going through right now? Uh, what's what's your visceral feeling? It's it's very sad. It's um, I mean, as we speak right now, my memory is taking back back 2013, how we used to go to see him to the embassy. Uh, at that time, people were allowed to come in, and um, we we used to go quite often. I even cooked <laughs> a traditional food plov, and I took one big 
pot of plot to him. And he he had ten people. Uh, we had you know he organized meeting for ten people, and then I volunteered if I could cook plof, and I I, I thought we could do plof and vodka nights. So he agreed to that, and um, I mean. You know, we used to go quite often, not just once or twice. We used to drink, we used to eat, we used to laugh, we used to speak, we used to joke. We, we mostly, we used to talk about films because I'm a filmmaker and I was right. always interested in films. So well, I'm going to talk about that in a second, about your films. Yeah. And I, I didn't give you a proper introduction, but go ahead, continue. I'm yeah, sorry. so it's okay. And so we, for me, uh, my... <laughs> My relationship with him was very much friend friend based, and we would never speak. We wouldn't speak like deep politics because I'm not that bright. Yes, uh, you are that bright. <laughs> you know, listen, wait a second. <laughs> I I, I think there, okay, but well, I I would talk more about human condition and about what he was going through, uh, psychological effect. I would observe all this human side of. Uh, of him and I would ask more about the difficulties and about his personal you know life his mom and his dad he was very much family person but of course I didn't know he had kids at that time but it was 2014-15 so I mean I only stopped going to see him what three years ago yes I know when you yeah. went to the you went to the birthday party I believe uh, back in uh, 2017. You that was my there. last one. Yeah. yeah. We had John Pilger. We were screening John Pilger's new documentary film. And so at that time, that was my last, you know, I couldn't go because the embassy then strictly stopped uh, everyone to come in. So for me, my angle was more of human suffer and and, and there's no doubt that when I created my short film, Locked In, that is about asylum seekers. And somehow, I mean, you know, seeing Julian being locked in within four walls kind of triggered me. And I, tr and I thought I would do a film on asylum seekers, which was my favorite subject all the time. And I always wanted to do a film about asylum seekers process, you know, going through this dehumanizing system and and of course this Julian's being locked down within four walls gave me an angle of okay how I could create this story the psychological impact of being locked in within the four walls without knowing uh, your, your your future or, or this uncertainty you know and you don't know how long so and and what awaits after that, all the psychological human effects. So for me, it was more of that side was more interested, interesting. And, and we could talk. I mean, we did. And he was a great, he was a great man. And I feel so sorry right now what he's going through. It's just, <laughs> it's in a, in a, Forget about being friends, but it's just a human level. It's not a good thing to go through. Take away all the freedom. I mean, to take away everything, the books and communication, everything, you know. they. I mean, it's obvious enough they want to silence him. And 
you know, it's it's a new era. It's a, it's a new century where we are, you know, our motto is not to be silent, and it, it's an it's an obvious situation with Julian's being silenced right now, you know, and yeah, for me, it's more a different angle of knowing him, if you see what I mean. Right. No, that's, that's very well said. Uh, and, and, and I can identify because uh, you talk about the vodka night uh, with him. I remember <laughs> I was there the last time I was there, 2017 uh, in November. And I went in, someone from uh, anonymous Scandinavia, one of those dudes says, hey, do me a favor. Would you bring him in a bottle of um, bullet bullet uh, bourbon? So I did. I brought him in a, a bottle of bullet. And I saw the picture the other day because SE Global has all of this footage. They got me giving him a bottle, me having a drink. I think I finished the, uh, the bottle of bourbon. But, you know, we did a couple of toasts together. Just tell me a little bit about the... The, uh, the, the vodka. The vodka, <laughs> yes. Okay. So our... Um so uh, one one day we were four of us, and uh, so Julian and two more from WikiLeaks, and it was you. You weren't there. You were in Ghana. I was in Ghana. Yeah, and we were. I brought him as I promised. Uh, I brought him my favorite vodka, and that was Russian Standard. I like Russian Standard and Grey Goose, but because I'm more loyal to Russian Standard, I took him Golden Russian Standard um, with. Um, because there are there are types and he was very happy i think he had a knowledge about i mean he knew how to drink vodka and it's great when you know uh somebody you know vodka tastes much better and fun when when you drink with somebody who has a knowledge and um not in a like a drunken way but in more pleasure way that that we we talk about flavors and things I know you may think vodka has no flavor, it's only spirit, but it actually does, you know, someone who understands. So, and um, so he was an, a, another person from WikiLeaks, it was Joseph. Yeah, so uh, Joseph uh, from WikiLeaks, he was, um, and I said, well, when you drink what this one as clean, it's, it's okay, next day you, you won't feel bad and things. And it's not that it's it's not cheap vodka, cheap because you know they were a bit worried. Other other people were a bit, a bit worried about drinking vodka, but so then Julian said, "I mean, uh, you won't get hangover, bad hangover with clean vodka." So it's like I remember that so clearly, you know. Uh, like a lot of fun. We were uh, drinking, uh, yeah, and then we ordered kebab because you know uh, there are there were so many. Uh, Mediterranean uh, restaurants and we ate kebab and we had a good time I mean we just laughed and we were four people and then we left it's just you know I mean when I think of him it's really nice warm um, you know com pleasant conversations you know yes, I mean, yes. I, I, it's, I never I never felt anything strange or any you know, nothing weird in, in his presence. It was all so good energy. You know, he was one of those uh, with a good vibe, you know. It's just like really nice man. I mean, I feel so sorry for what's happening right now. We are talking with Nadira Murray, a filmmaker. Uh, we're going to uh, speak in the, the Locked In is the, is the film. 
which um, we featured a couple of years back uh, on the Science Countdown to Freedom. Uh, if Kelly has it lined up, I, I want to play the trailer uh, to that film. And I want to, uh, on the other side, continue talking about Julian and these experiences. But I, I want to squeeze it, not squeeze it, I want, I, want to, I want people to see that. So this is from Locke in, I think, 2017. Here's a trailer. Are you Samaria Sadikova? We were peaceful protesters. Nothing to do with any Islamic terrorists. Why did they keep you in the cellar longer than Nazim? They transferred me into a different cell. Where is my wife? If we go back, it will be the end. On the 5th of July 2013, you entered the United Kingdom on a three-month short-term student visa. You've overstayed and broken the UK's immigration rules. You will be handed over to the border agency for deportation. Can you hold me, please? They came from Afghanistan. 18 years old. Wow, that's pretty heavy there. Um, Nadira Murray, uh, so Julian Assange, his experience inspired that film? Well, I, I, insp inspiration, usually I take that word as a positive word. So I, it didn't inspire, but more, it, it kind of um, made me feel How can I say? It's very difficult. It made me feel very um, sad, like down. Right, and, right. Um, so, yeah, I guess it is inspiration, but usually I interpret the word inspiration in a more... Oh, I, I know. Way. <laughs> so. you to do something, though. The fact is, is that Craig gets inspired to write uh, about the uh, terrible thing that happened uh, in that courtroom on February 24th through the 28th. And so, I mean, he's not inspired, but I mean, he, you get angry by yeah, it. Yeah, yeah, you so get it, angry you, when you feel about the lock, locked in within the four walls, being locked down without knowing your future or uncertain times. So that aspect actually was, you know, when you feel for somebody uh, or for something, and it makes you kind of um, write something. You want to you want to talk about it, and and so that I explored through uh, the theme of asylum seekers, and from the uh, subject that I I witnessed and I've I known I knew uh, through many cases. So that was combining everything. Yes, that's an intimidating. Um uh, prison where that was filmed. I, I think you, uh, the inside of it, and we know that Balmores is no different than that, that prison where you filmed. Right? Yeah, uh, so we filmed at a um, real prison, and that prison was um, recently shut down. So it was shut down, and it was category B prison. Uh, uh, so the, the security system would be so tough and it's only for criminals you know that category b and and so asylum seekers are mostly kept in category b prison prison as well in the uk so i thought that's excellent i would 
you know, I, I went to the prison and I talked to a couple of people. I chased, <laughs> I chased them. I wanted to film in a real prison. I wanted my actors to actually feel and, you know, and to give that sense of being locked down within four walls. I wanted my actors to feel in order to give a, a perfect performance. And I think I, it was a good idea. And I, I succeeded to get that location. And then we did film in a category B prison. And that is a close to the real, real story. It's, a, it's an award-winning documentary. Uh, it is, uh, or it's, it's a documentary, it's a movie. It's, actually, it's a yeah. short film. It's called a short film. I know you've won awards. It was out in Los Angeles, a uh, film festival out there, and it's been around the world. Uh, how do people uh, get access to watch that film in its totality? Say it again, last sentence. How, are, how do people who want to see the whole film, how do they gain access to it? Uh, okay, so right now I'm working on uploading it on Amazon and uh, so people can um, rent out and it's a pay per, per, pre, pay per view. view. Yeah, sorry. Pay for, I can't say that. Pay okay. for PPV. PPV, I'm sorry. So it's, uh, I'm working on that right now. And you speak a lot of languages. You can, if you can't say, you speak, no, you know, I'm you speak just, Uzbek, you speak Russian. How many languages do you speak? No, just those. I'm just saying. Paper, I can't say that. I'm it's sorry. Okay. I can't say it either. You haven't had any vodka today, have you? <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm actually thinking with vodka, I actually speak a lot yeah, better. That, that, that's a problem. We're, we're, we're both far too sober. <laughs> uh, well, me too. I, I think I'm going to have to make it. <laughs> Let me, wait a second. So the, that, that image of you having vodka with him, it reminds me of, uh, there's a scene in, uh, there's, uh, there's a, uh, uh, not a scene, but there's, there's a part in, in War and Peace, the Rostov family, I think they have, they have this big gathering. It's for General Bagrasian, I believe. And everybody at that table, it's a long table, about 40 military officers, and they're all doing this thing where they're drinking vodka, right? Everybody's, it, and they're doing a hurrah, and they're celebrating. And they're do, it, it's, it's a ritual, right, when you drink vodka? Like that. Yeah, it is. It's a skill, you know. You need to control vodka, otherwise it can control you. So <laughs> you got a good Craig. Have you ever been? Have you been in a situation where you've done those yeah. shots of vodka like that? Well, very much. So. I mean, used to all the time when I was both in Poland and in um, Uzbekistan and in St. Petersburg as a diplomat. You'd have dinners where it's absolutely the norm: lunches and dinners, where everyone at the lunch or dinner would have to give a toast and then after each toast you would have a shot of vodka and there could be 16 people 20 people at the dinner so you would have to have <laughs> 20 shots of vodka and they have to go down in one you know you have to and so you could you you could quite seriously be drinking well over half a liter of vodka within 15 minutes uh, and it was it, it actually and that sounds weird it is a necessary skill if you're going to be a diplomat in this country. so and you, that, you I, have I, to pace yourself though don't you well you can't and you have to drink at the date that people are making toasts and the toasts don't last very long so you know you can as i say i mean very very easily you can be drinking half a liter of vodka within 15 minutes no, no, and i have to do that on occasion Wow. Now, have you done that with Julian? Had you in the past? 
not that quickly. Though they, I can't quite remember when, which was the last occasion I saw Julian before I wasn't allowed to enter anymore. Because of course, once the regime changed in Ecuador, neither um, neither Nadira nor I were were allowed in to see him anymore. We were banned. But um, on it would be about my last visit or my penultimate visit. Uh, Julian and I uh, were sitting and we're we're talking over a lot of things, um, things we were planning, um, and we were we were drinking a fair amount while we were chatting along, and then Yanis Varoufakis turned up, um, and, and he turned up with dinner. He brought dinner with him for for Julian, um, and he brought in some bottles of of wine. So I stayed, and we started drinking. All over again. So, so, so there was a fair amount of drinking on that, uh, on, on on that occasion as well. But I, I should say that most of the times I visited Julian in the in the embassy, we were actually working on things, right. and no. we were pretty well stone cold sober. It wasn't it wasn't one long. But you know, it's nice to remember the good times. But it wasn't actually one long party. Right. I I don't want to suggest he's a dipsomaniac because he's not. You know, I was in there three times and there's one time I did a, a cup. I did more than he did. He had a couple of shots just to be nice with me. Uh, so I'm not suggesting, but I'm just trying to, uh, you know, paint a picture of him, uh, what he's like, because there's been this smear job, this organized smear job on Julian Assange uh, for the last 10 years. Um, by the U.S. government, by, by the uh, Crown Prosecutor Services. Uh, oh. and, uh, but, you know, people don't realize the human side of him. And some of the so when you're sitting around, it's not all political. I mean, the guy's got a great sense of humor, right? Just give me, uh, you know, something that you could, uh, your takeaway on those visits, on Julian's overall character. Well, he's a very, very warm and witty man. I mean, he's deeply intelligent. Uh, and he comes up with... Um, uh, you know, unexpected thoughts and unexpected angles on things you weren't expecting to be talking about, um, but which also you know, are of interest to you. Like, as Nadella says, like, like books or films or philosophy or even, you know, cricket. Cr cr cricket is, um, uh, you know, an important sport here in the UK. You don't, uh, you don't call it much in the States, but Julian you know, has actually quite a lot of knowledge of cricket. We, we would sit and discuss really? sports on occasion. Yeah, they call yeah. it baseball here. It's it's pretty much the same. I think the I think that the Brits are. It started in India, or did it start in in the in the UK? Cricket. Where okay. did it originate? Yeah, cricket started in England, I think, in the late 18th century. In the, in the fact, it's a little similar to but to, to baseball. But baseball um, is a. Uh, um, our equivalent of baseball is called rounders, and, and you know, baseballs are much, much easier. It's a kind of children's version of cricket. <laughs> you, now, you're not into cricket, but you're into sports, though, Nadir, right? Yeah, I, I, I like sports. I do sports. Yeah, and, and, and so in Uzbekistan, what kind of sports were you involved in? <laughs> I mean, you know, are there, are there in soccer? I mean, what, what sport? Oh, okay. No, um... Mostly, I did taekwondo, and when I was, uh, as a child, I did I did gymnastics, and um, when I grew up, I did taekwondo. So, my sport was more taekwondo. I see. Yes. Well, it's funny because Julian does have this wide range of, of information and, and and intelligence. You've talked about this many times, uh, Craig. 
that uh, he's probably the smartest and more, most articulate. I've heard you say that, the most articulate and smartest person. And you know just about everybody. So, you know, that, that's high praise. And, and I, I can't disagree. Uh, I've seen dozens of interviews. I've been around him. But he's humble about it. You know what I mean? It's not like he wears it on his sleeve that he's the smartest guy in the room. Yeah, he's very humble. You are right. You know, and uh, so it just, it just pains me. I, I see what's happening right now uh, with this judge. Uh, this judge. I, I, it's Baltus, what's her name, uh, Craig? Beretza, Vanessa Beretza. Yeah, yeah Beretza. Yeah, I mean, and, and you uh, wrote a piece just the other day about her making Stella Morris come out, right? And mm -hmm. I, I think it ended up being a blessing in disguise because you realize now the guy's got two children. He, yeah. Is this woman going to make those kids orphans? Is that what she's going to do by keeping them there? Yeah, I mean, I think, well, I, I've no doubt that their purpose was pure cruelty and vindictiveness in lifting the anonymity of, of Stella and her uh, children. Um, but it, as you say, it backfired on them because actually Stella played it beautifully and, and came out and gave interviews and explained, you know, that they have a loving relationship and a family life. Um, uh, so, yeah, I, I, I think that's actually worked out quite well in the end. But the, and the sheer vindictiveness of, of lifting the anonymity of, of, of his wife and children and or his fiance and children and opening it up to press reporting um it was just intended to add to the cruelty and the psychological pressure uh, at all stages um the you know but there's not been any stage at all in which the magistrates have granted anything julian has ever asked for and they were still at that same hearing where they lifted the anonymity of his family, um, they refused to postpone the hearing, which is meant to reconvene on May the 18th, where the uh, extradition hearing is meant to reconvene. And the, his lawyers are physically not allowed access to him. His lawyers can't see him. Nothing can go in and out of the jail because the jail's full of COVID-19. Yeah. Um, and the, the witnesses aren't going to be able to travel, but the lawyers can't travel and see the witnesses at the moment. Um, so, the, and, and yet they're refusing to postpone the hearing. Uh, and this is absolutely astonishing. Well, I was planning on going, but it's, it's four weeks away now. Uh, and I don't think I'm going to be able to get over there. Uh, I don't know if you can travel uh, there to, to, to um, uh, watch. At, at present, I'm under present conditions. I wouldn't be allowed to go. Um, we don't know how things will be come May the 18th, but I very much doubt they'll have changed yeah. enormously. And particularly, you know, there are witnesses who are meant to be coming from all over the world um, who aren't going to be able to get there. Uh, and the fact that he can't meet with his lawyers to prepare. You know, you know it's completely crazy that they won't agree to a postponement, but, but they, they're just determined to rush this through. And it, it sounds strange, but um, I'm in fairness, the United States government didn't object to the postponement. The, the lawyers representing the U.S. government said they were neutral on the subject. It was the judge who, <laughs> as usual, just refused any request made by Julian's lawyers. And as usual, she had the judgment already written down before she heard the arguments, You know, which you, you and I have witnessed um, in person before. She comes in with the judgment written down before she hears the counsel speak. No, she, she's got it right in front of her. I'll tell you something. She makes um, uh, the, the judge in the, in the Jeremy Thorpe case 
look fair and balanced. You know, uh, you'll have to look that up, folks. But uh, the judge in that case was totally uh, on his side, if you recall. Um, but, but she's even, uh, you know, more prejudicial than, I mean, I, most judges are in the tank, but she's so far in the tank, she doesn't make any pretense that she's not. It's astonishing. I mean, I don't know anyone really who, other than one or two bought and sold members of the mainstream media, um, I, no, there, there was no one else who was there in that hearing that we were, we were at, um, who wasn't just astonished by, by how blatant the judge was, how little it's hidden. There's really very little pretense. Not only is there very little pretense at fairness, there's almost no pretense at civility. That you know, she's almost not respecting the courtesies of pretending to be listening to the defense. Uh, she told me to sit, she, you know, she looked at the gallery that one day when somebody put a photo out there. I'm sure there are other photos too. I just haven't seen them yet. But uh, uh, there was a photo that somebody took on the first day and she excoriated uh, those in the gallery who may have taken that photo. I remember I was standing up trying to see her in the corner there. She was in her bulletproof uh, cage over there. Julian's on the other side. And she looks up and says, sit down, gallery. Do you remember that? <laughs> I, do, I do remember. And also, of course, she was taking, I mean, the, the photo had been taken the day before. Right. Uh, on the Monday, people, the Monday the 24th. Yeah, and the, people, the people in the gallery the next day weren't all the same people who'd been there the day before. So why, right. why she presumed that whoever had taken the photo was still there? Um, and it wasn't you or me that took that photo. So why she was yelling at us? <laughs> I am not, you know what? That person was thrown out by uh, the guy who, um, you remember the, the, the great Harry, the guy, the, the guy yeah. Mark is his name, who, um, you know, these guys, that's what's really weird, you know, because... Uh, Nadir was talking about the, the effects in these prisons and how things kind of spread. Uh, you know, people who worked at prison, they, they hung out at the Great Harry, a lot of them, and there's a subway station or, or there's an underground a block away, the main one on the Northern Light Line, I think it's called, uh, that were coming in. The place was always packed. So, you know, it, it, and now we got a, a heavy uh, breakout of this virus in the UK. Uh, you got Boris Johnson got it. I mean, it's, it's, we have at Rikers Island here, 700 known cases at Rikers yeah. Island. So I, it's definitely going to hit, uh, one person's already died there. So if one person got it, he's had it for a long time, right? So we don't know. He's talking to other people. It circulates like air, that virus. So, you know, I think that uh, she's not going to mind if he gets it and be, with his pre-existing condition, with, with the chronic lung condition, he probably won't live it. It'd be like an execution. She's, it's, yeah. it's an execution that's happening. Well, well, two people in that prison have died. or they, Authorities are admitting to one, but the prisoners say that two people have died in that jail already from COVID-19, two prisoners. Uh, and what they're doing in the jail is they're putting anyone who's got a cough into a single block together they're not testing anyone they're not doing any COVID-19 testing just as soon as you get a cough you go into that that block so people with ordinary colds or coughs or lung conditions and Julian of course has a lung condition are going to be putting being put into a place with COVID-19 victims uh, so they can all catch it it's like 19th century treatment of tuberculosis you, no, you know it's trial by ordeal basically yeah, but, 
right. they're basically shoving them there to die. Um, so, uh, you know, it's quite extraordinary. And here you have Julian, uh, who hasn't been convicted of anything. He, he's he's charged with a non-violent crime. I mean, he's charged with journalism, for God's sake. That's what the actual charge is, publishing stuff. Uh, and he's being, uh, he, he's awaiting trial, unconvicted, uh, and they won't let him out you know, during this COVID-19 crisis. It's absolutely crazy. And he has a, a fiancé and children he can go and live with and, and who give him a reason to stay. Uh, so uh, the vindictiveness of it. And I, I've no doubt they want to kill him. I, I genuinely don't. You know, I'm, And all these, this continuing mental torture, keeping him locked in that glass cage, or, or this strip searching, cavity searching, or all these things they do to him all the time for no reason. The um, humiliation is just, it, yeah. it, it's, it's reprehensible to say the least. Uh, I mean, Nadira, you know by working on that film and, and you, I, you got a sense of what prisons are like and, and how people are boxed in. Uh, what is your feeling about him and, and the possibility of getting uh, COVID-19? Well, it's, you know, as Craig said, it's high, high likely because, I mean, he, how often does he go to open air? Is he allowed? Once a day for a few minutes. Basically. Once a day for a few minutes, you yeah. know. And, and when, when you're locked in within these four walls and there's no air, you know, circulation, there's no air conditioning, you know, it's it's prison and all kinds of, and it's already so, you know, cold and psychological impact, impact is huge. I mean, I just, I have no words, honestly, because it's just appalling. It's so humiliating, as you said. I, of course, you know, anyone can get... COVID and I just you know government is being protective over people to stay at home I mean everybody is panicked and yet this condition in prison for prisoners you know I, I don't I don't know I'm so appalled I have I, I can't describe more but getting angry you know it's okay, get angry, because we're all angry, right? Yeah. We should say it's not only Julian. I mean, all non-violent prisoners, or all prisoners who are not guilty of the most serious violent crime should be let out at the moment. Right. Uh, right. It, because we're going to find jails everywhere become breeding grounds for this disease because of well, the conditions. When you got Buckingham Palace, you got Prince Charles, and you got the Prime Minister. Now, you would think the Prime Minister, since he just went through this experience, knows how bad it is because he was on death's door at, at one point and he was revived when he got into a great, the NHS he thanked at the end. You would think he'd be a little more sympathetic uh, to these prisoners and especially why would he let a guy like Julian Assange, an international figure like that, rot away and be exposed because it's going to be on him. He could actually pull the, uh, the strings to get him out of that situation, can't he? Well, they could, they could let him out, no trouble at all. And they could let him out on bail. Uh, I and mean, he's only on remand. He's not, 
he's not being convicted. You know, he's yeah. not he's not a convict. Wait, he's jumped bail though, man. You remember he jumped bail. But, exactly, but there's no reason why they can't bail him. Uh, it, yeah. It's just they just decided not to. But yes, they they could let him out tomorrow. Uh, and there's no there's no legal reason that's preventing them from from letting him out. It's that this woman is obsessed, and somebody's given her the orders, and uh, she does. I don't know where she got her law degree. And I look at some of these people, they go to law school, spend all that time in law school, and this is what she's doing with that education. I look at these three guys who were there from the U.S. Justice Department. That's what they have decided to do with their life, destroy a man that did something. He could have made a ton of money. He went out there and was a truth teller. He was a journalist. What have these guys done with the education that they got? And, and it was so appalling to see these three guys walking around shamelessly, you know, cold-heartedly uh, pulled the strings of the, uh, the, the CPS UK guys, the Crown Prosecutors, uh, right sitting behind them. And, you know, they're so ice cold. I just, I can't imagine anyone would go to a law school. It's like someone who practices, goes to medical school and comes out and he's into euthanasia only, you know? Um, I, I want to play this um, uh, clip, uh, Craig, uh, before I forget, because this is something... Um, that pretty much, we look at the, the British uh, legal system. It, it's supposed to be, it's supposed to be something that, that you look at and you say, this is great, this is a democracy. They have a great medical, uh, the NHS. What about the legal system? Shouldn't they have something akin to the NHS in the legal system? Here's what you say. Uh, can you uh, put that, uh, this is from St. Francis Church in London back in November. We're gonna play uh, this is like a minute and a half long, so bear with me. Um, this is a great speech here. To hold the microphone, uh, but this building was built long before the invention of the microphone, and I'm going to work on the basis you can hear me if I project. You might, we might lose some nuance in the voice, but I'm not big on nuance anyway. As I came in here today, um, I had a look at the monuments at the back. I only, in fact, looked at the first ones just on the back wall at that side. And I saw a monument to the Burnley family on the wall there of Barbados, a monument to the Beale family of Canton, and a monument to the Page family of Bombay all those monuments dating from between 1790 and 1820. That means, for certain, and these are the people, it says, who donated to build this beautiful building we are in, the Burnleys of Barbados will undoubtedly have been involved in slavery at the end of the 18th century. And the Beals of Canton and the Pages of Bombay were undoubtedly involved in the opium trade from India to China. And this building is like the British establishment itself. On the surface, it is beautiful, solid and harmonious, but it is based on corruption, based on immorality. Building there, 
and then the, the facade of the building, you go in there, it's a beautiful building, and then you bring up, I mean, I know you didn't write a speech. I mean, that's one of the things I've seen you speak three or four times, and you never have a speech written, all right? And uh, is that always been, uh, Nate, yeah, does he, he ever never, write a speech, or he just speaks off the top of his head? Yes, he never writes, he, he never sits down and prepares what to write he always takes notes but then every time when he goes to a different building he just first scams the building analyzes and it comes up with this wonderful historical <laughs> you know <laughs> some facts and it's like uh okay we, he's a historian so he he studied history so um of course he would know and then he combines in his opening species he always is acting, uh, 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 adding some historical facts. So yeah, he never writes down his speech. Yeah, well, I think it's better that way because you know, you know, look, I, 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 that speech they keep bringing up Churchill. We got this Governor Cuomo's uh, talking about Churchill's speech. That speech that he that he did uh, the darkest hour speech. I mean, and and if you listen to the actual speech, you can tell that he's reading it. All right. You know, when somebody's reading it, I mean, yeah, the transcript yeah. is better than the actual audio of Churchill making that speech, you know, and Gary Oldman did a great job at his rendition of it, which certainly is not, he did a better rendition of it than Churchill did. Uh, so, but that was a written speech and, and, you know, uh, people can mislead you into thinking that they're talking off the top of their head when they're, I can tell when somebody's reading a speech, why, why is it to you? Uh, much better to speak off the top of your head. You know, is it because when you write a speech, you, you're writing it out and there's no natural uh, flow to it? Yeah, I mean, I mean, if you write a speech, you're basically acting while you're speaking. You, you know, you're, you're, you're doing a performance. Um, right. Even if it was your, your own words you're performing. Whereas uh, if you speak spontaneously, uh, then it's very real uh, and you're really communicating with the audience um, in front of you. In, in real time and reacting to, to how they are reacting to your speech, if you see what I mean. Uh, and I think that's very important to be able to tell what interests that particular audience and then go off down, down, down that way. But also um, there's an edginess to it, isn't there? Which is great. And you've, you know, you've done an awful lot of comedy. And there's an edginess to live performance. Oh, yes. Know if you're going to fall off the tightrope or not. And, and, the, uh, and that adds... You know, surge adrenaline of gives you yeah. adrenaline, right? Uh, uh, it's a challenging and it's an adrenaline kind of feeling. I've never done the same show twice. You know, I have no discipline. A lot of comedians, they'll go up there and do the same act from A to Z, but what they're doing is they're like robots. They're just repeating the lines that they've said a million times. It's much better to be a spontaneous. I'm going to go to one of the speeches in this book um, that you made in, uh, uh, in uh, Uzbekistan. Uh, at, at this affair that Freedom House put together. Uh, now, was that a written speech, the one where you condemned the uh, government of uh, Uzbekistan and the uh, widespread torture that they, they had employed? On this yeah, that, that one was very much a written speech because you know, that was when yeah. I was a British ambassador and it was an official speech, so I had to clear it, but I had to send it back for civil servants in various departments to go through and agree I should make it uh, because it was being made on behalf of the British government, not being made on my own behalf. So, so that, that was very different. That, that one was a, a formally written piece of work. 
Are you telling me that speech was first sent to the FCO censors and they cleared it all the way through, or did you embellish it once they cleared it? No, they cleared it all the way through. Um, I, I was very cunning, um, if I may say so, um, in terms of who I sent it to in the FCO, and which uh, I kind of sent it to the Human Rights Department okay. rather than the department dealing with the Afghan war. <laughs> so <laughs> they, uh, uh, I got... I got clearance, uh, I did get clearance too, and I did copy in the other departments, but not in a way that drew it to their attention, let me put it that way. Um, so, so yeah, no, no, it was formally cleared. Whether it had been properly cleared was a matter of some dispute afterwards. Right, so that's, that's, that's also in this book is, Nadira is in this book. Nadira, how did you meet Craig? <laughs> yeah, give us that story because people don't, I mean, you can find out in this book here, but tell me, uh, how did you happen across Craig Murray, Ambassador Craig Murray, uh, when uh, you first met? Well, it's a bit naughty <laughs> if I speak about it. All right, but... Speak metaphorically, all right? <laughs> uh, so um, we met at the uh, nightclub. Yes. That's a short story. You want longer version <laughs> well, well, or short version? Well, right, that's where you first met, and that's and and so uh, uh, and so yeah. you started hanging out together. You were immediately attracted to him. What was no, it? We weren't hanging out together. All right. <laughs> so you want longer story? <laughs> well, I need vodka for that. All right. Well, then we'll have to we'll have to interview uh, you alone, part two, and get the long. But you've been together for. You met, you, did you get married there? Is that where you first met and, and, and you continued? Uh, How long did you last after you met in Uzbekistan, Craig? Um, oh. After you and Nadira met. How much longer did you last there? Another, nearly another two One. years. Another year and a no. half, maybe, something no, like that. Year. Um, One year, three months. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. One year, three months. I think it was a little longer. But no, no, no. But, um, because we came in August. We came to UK. Okay. Yeah. So you came uh, one year. Six months. Six months. Yeah. Another one and a half years after after that. We, we, so we we were in Uzbekistan for a year and a half. But, but we've been together now for an awful long while. We've been together Since now. Since two thousand three, we are together. Seventeen years. Wow. Isn't that boring? That's a dream, dream <laughs> relationship. Look, give them a kiss. They're online. There you go. You guys are. are but you're not gonna watch their show. That it's only boys, yeah. right? Uh, no, we'll cut out if you guys gave each other a kiss. No. Yeah. <laughs> I'm misbehaving. No, you're not. You're fine. This is great. This is gonna be. Look, we're gonna have it. We're going to have the video, but we're gonna play the audio only uh, tomorrow. I mean, yes, it's coming out tomorrow as we speak. And um, so it will, we'll send it, it to you. We're going to send it to you, the video, and you can tell me what you don't want in there. All right. We can always put some B-roll behind it. You know how to use B-roll. You're a director. Uh, so let me ask you that. All right. So you met and you, in the capacity, you became a director, a filmmaker. Um, no, not immediately. So um, we met with Craig at the nightclub, that was a different kind of, not nightclub, the people go together, it's a gentleman's club. So I was a dancer uh, at nighttime, but daytime I was a teacher. So, and uh, so we met there, it was a bit controversial way of meeting, but, um, and then, and then 
2004, we came to U UK, <clears throat> and uh, we came to UK for holiday. It was supposed to be only for two weeks, and then we couldn't go back uh, because his visa stopped to Uzbekistan, and I was not allowed to enter to Uzbekistan. So we only came to United Kingdom for two weeks holiday, and we could never go back. And I could haven't been back. No, since 2004, no, I couldn't even say goodbye to my parents. I have never been. I haven't been to Uzbekistan ever since. Yeah. I was not allowed to go back, and he wasn't allowed. So all his, you know, all, all our clothes and everything was left behind in Uzbekistan. But eventually it came. But what I'm trying to say is we were banned to enter to Uzbekistan. Were you aware uh, back then of, of the... Um the crimes that uh, Craig had uncovered? Um, uh, no, no, I was just his girlfriend. <laughs> All right. So I Craig, didn't know what he was Craig, doing. Craig, that was, that was a, a gutsy move, and that's the reason why you got the, uh, that award, the Sam Adams Award, many other awards. Um, do you have any regret uh, doing what? Because, you know, you did what, what Assange does. You expose torture. Uh, you expose crimes. And um, and uh, do you, do you have any regrets losing that gig over there? I mean, you did the right thing. Is what I'm saying. Yeah, I um, I don't have any regrets. I well, I'm mean, the things I, I I regret. I couldn't stop it. I mean, I would have liked to have stayed within government service and prevented government from acting illegally because that's what I was trying to do. I, uh, you know, I was attempting to stop torture and extraordinary rendition on the inside. Um, and when I started doing that, I, I didn't think it ought to be that hard. I thought, well, you know, there's an awful lot of involvement in stuff here from security services and the military in things we didn't ought to be involved in at all. But that must only be because, you know, Jack Straw and Tony Blair and the people at top of government don't know about it. If I can get the information to them, then they will stop it. And of course, I didn't realize that, that they were uh, having sanctioned it, you know, but that our involvement in torture and extraordinary rendition, along with the United States, um, was something sanctioned from the very, very top. Um, and so my, my, my regret is not having succeeded in stopping it, if you like, but do I regret having lost my own career in the, the attempt? No, because I think um, at the end of the day, uh, you know, one day we're all going to um, uh, meet our maker. Yeah. Uh, I know you're a religious man. All right. I understand that. Yeah. You, know, uh, you, you want to do the right thing, you know. Uh, you, you want to be able to, uh, to, to stand there and not have a huge weight of, of, of very bad stuff on your head. So if you come across something like involvement in torture, for me, that there isn't actually any choice. You know, there's no point in asking, "Did you do the right thing?" Right. I, well, I know. Have yeah. any alternative? Well, that's the point. You lost your job, Julian Assange, with the war logs and the cables and all of that. He put himself in the situation. Uh, Vault Seven, I think, has a lot to do with it because CIA is pulling strings there too. Do you think he has any regret uh, publishing those things? I don't. What do you think? No, I'm, I'm sure he would do the same again. I, I've got no doubt about. But he said that, that there are one or two places where, um, you know, redaction could have been better or what one or two things could be done a little 
differently. We, we, but we, that's true of all of us. No, nobody is perfect. All of us are, are human. You're bound to be one or two things you could do a little better. But, but he, he has no regret whatsoever about uh, having done the basic job of, of publishing those vital um, secrets. And of course, we shouldn't forget here um, Chelsea Manning, the, yes. you know, who, who, who is a real genuine hero of, of the strongest kind. And I think, uh, and I'm so happy Chelsea is now out again, but um, the, of all the heroic things Chelsea did, the, uh, that recent stand of refusing to testify against Julian Assange, even uh, at the cost of going back to jail, you, you know, the, the heroism involved in that was absolutely fantastic. Uh, Unbelievable. That said, that is some role model. Uh, very few people are like that. Um, you know, Julian's gone through this for eight years. Chelsea's gone through it for like eight years herself. Uh, but you see very few people who can undergo that and not bend to the system. I mean, uh, Nelson Mandela did it, you know, for a long period of time. Uh, uh, Peter Kropotkin was in a, uh, the, the Peter and Paul Fortress for, for years. And what he would do is walk around in a circle to try to stay sane. How do they stay sane? Like, what kind of person is able to do this and maintain their sanity and their integrity? I mean, it's, yeah. a, it's a rare quality. No, it, it is. It requires extraordinary self-belief and extraordinary self-reliance. Um, and yeah, it, it, it's very rare. And the quality... But it's in, what scares me is how, how few people are prepared to do the right thing in the first place. You know, when I was involved in, in the Foreign Office and I came across our complicity in torture and extraordinary rendition, um, I wasn't the only one. You, you know, there were scores of other people, other ambassadors, other civil servants, other diplomats who came across or were involved in the process who didn't blow the whistle, who didn't try to stop it. And, and I know for certain, because a lot of these people, I've been working in the foreign office over 20 years, so a lot of these people were personal friends of mine. Some of them still are, in a sense. Um, most of them were against it. They didn't believe in it. They thought it was wrong, but they weren't prepared to put their, their necks on the line to stop it. Uh, and that's the, that's the great difficulty, that, that, that there are just so many people out there who will go along with evil uh, rather than lose uh, their own position. Uh, 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 and it's, it's making it more normal to do the right thing. That's the challenge that society faces. Well, Craig Murray and Adair Murray, we just have a few minutes left here. I, I want to make sure that I get this book out there, which if you're, if you're locked inside your apartment, if you're locked in your house anywhere, uh, may I recommend reading this book here, all right? And, of course, you've seen this many times in pictures, Craig, because this is the third time I've read it. And this book here that, I, that you're in, and you don't even know that you're in this book, but I must put it up. I recommend people read this book uh, called in, in Defense of Assange, where Craig's got a great essay in and um, and then, of course, I'm reading another journalist, and that's Murat. And I know you're a Desmoline guy, right? You're more into Desmoline. But they went after journalists during the French Revolution. Even Lafayette chased this guy down, Murat, because they didn't like information getting out there, right? They, during the French Revolution, there were a lot of journalists, 
and they did not want them publishing and they tried to hunt them down uh, when they were trying to inform the people. So I take a look at that period of time and they've always tried to kill uh, those who tell the truth uh, or silence them. I, I spoke to Julian about this. I said, you know, during the, during the um, uh, uh, slavery days here, there were a lot of journalists that were abolitionist journalists uh, who were killed. You know, one Elijah Lovejoy was killed in 1837. They took his printing press, threw it in the uh, Missouri River, and they killed him. But the guy, could, but they had harassed him for years. He said the difference is is that only the slave power was upset with him. With me, everybody's upset with me because I go after everybody. So it was a false analogy, and I think he was right. Um, and uh, read John Pilger. You guys are the the two leading voices uh, here for Julian Assange. The the most um, uh, effective advocates. The two of you are, are like just a, a, a tremendous team of advocates for Julian Assange, the most eloquent and of course the most prolific too. Uh, Nadira Murray, um, you're a movie locked in. Uh, you can get that soon on, um, on Amazon uh, and you're, you are working on other projects right now. Do you want to just give us a, a little update on yeah. your current project? I finished my short film that's experimental that I directed and it's doing good as well at the festival. Uh, but uh, feature film, I also produced feature film in India, but um, the recent one, I produced a feature film in Iran. So we are working on this right now with, um, uh, with Screen Scotland. So we are in post-production. Everything froze now, everything stopped, but we are working remotely online. Things are going too slow, but um, our feature film is on the way. I think we're going to release from September. Well, you know, I know you were in Berlin when Craig and I were up at five o'clock in the morning, freezing our butts off yeah, uh, yeah. in line every morning. He is amazing because he'd go back and write and get back up at five and, and queue in uh, to be part of that 24 that got in. Then he finally got on on um, Julian's father, John Shipton's uh, personal list. So you got to go right by us, Craig. Um, <laughs> but um, I know you were in Berlin. It was a successful. Um, uh, yeah, I had a good time. A good time. I was very successful. You were in Berlin when we were there. And I, I really wish you well. And Craig, you can get your stuff at uh, your, your Craig Murray org uh, is your Twitter account. And then Craig Murray dot org dot uk is that it or is it craig murray org dot uk dot org dot uk uk so you can get all of your sharp trenchant uh hard-hitting um daily almost daily and i didn't really get to into this other trial that you just witnessed uh but we'll have to do that again when i get a hold of you in the next two months I'm <laughs> going, I'm so we'll, we'll have to do that quite soon because i'd like to do a program on that because yeah. It's really interesting and something people in the States probably don't know about. So yeah, I, yeah I, I want to talk about what, and what, and what was the defendant's name? Alex Salmond. Yeah, and you, got, and you got bounced out of there. They wouldn't even let you go in there, right? You almost I, got in contempt. I got chucked out of the public gallery, yeah, yeah um, for no reason at all, uh, for, for possible contempt or potential contempt, which is in case something I wrote was going to be in contempt, which is incredible when you think about it. Well, let's, um, let's go out with uh, final words, both of you. Nadir, we'll start with you. Final words on Julian Assange. Uh, any, any thoughts about where we go forward or just some kind of uh, well-wishing uh, goodbye, uh, you know, that uh, 
Mm. <clears throat> I mean, I do really hope, I wish, I pray, I do hope that government listens to what we're all saying. I think men should let out. He should be free. He's a father and he's someone's loving partner and he struggled a lot. I mean, he's not a single man. He's a father now, you know, it's, I think he has, he has a right to, to be with his kids, two young kids. I mean, it's so cruel to take that away from him. You know, I mean, nobody should take away fatherhoodness away. I mean, I would only concentrate on that, at least on that, you know, note. He should be let out, at least. Let him be. Let his kids to see his father, you know. Right. I mean, just on the fatherhooding, on that note, he should be let out. And yeah. I do hope. Yeah, I can imagine Cameroon, uh, Cameroon being yeah. with his father. It, it would be very Yeah, different. we are parents. I can feel it so much. You know, you can't take that away from a man. I mean, okay, other things, they're not listening. You know, I mean, he's not, he's still being in prison. He's, he should be freed. I mean, journalism should not suffer or silenced of that. But I'm just talking about a fatherhood note. On that note, at least let the man out, you know, L let him feel that. Let his kids feel, you know, and, and he's a loving partner to somebody, to Thank Stella. You. And Stella is, she deserves all the happiness on, on earth. She's such a lovely girl. I mean, it's just a family let let family in these hardships in these difficult moments let families be together at least give that give that feeling to a man be human do something human that that would be my message i mean what else i can say without getting angry i'm i'm sorry i'm a little bit i'm not calm as crazy it's not a prepared speech that you just I made mean, i'm sorry but I mean, he should feel this humanly, you know, human side of it. He should be with the family. Right now, families are very important. This is where we are together. We we are we should we should stay together. And I think this should not be taken away from him in these difficult times. I do hope that they will listen and I do pray that he will be free from all this chaos one day. That's my wish. Well, I'll tell you something. That's going to be a tough act to follow there. Spoken from the heart. Uh, Craig Murray, uh, final thoughts on uh, this persecution, this prosecution, uh, this Kafka-esque uh, charade, uh, and uh, anything else about uh, Assange? Well, I think the, you know, the COVID-19 crisis has, has built a new urgency to it. You know, we... We've been so worried about the deterioration in his health and what Nils Melser, the UN Special Rapporteur on Torture, called his psychological torture over, over a long period of time. There's now the danger, of course, with COVID-19 um, that he could die quite quickly yeah. in jail. He, he's a man with pre-existing lung conditions. But, and I really think it's time now for Donald Trump to act on this uh, and to end this 
uh, Sherard and closed down the uh, the extradition uh, request because um, you know this is all a question of the U.S. security services and the U.S. military attempting to get even for the Iraq and Afghanistan war logs for having those war crimes exposed. Um, but no, that, that ship has sailed. We know about those war crimes. Uh, that's now a part of history. It's also, unfortunately, it, it appears to be fairly settled that nobody's going to be punished for those war crimes. Uh, and the, to keep trying to uh, destroy Julian Assange uh, for having published the evidence of those war crimes. That, that's something which has massive ramifications for, for freedom of the media. Uh, that's something which you know destroys fundamental protections under the U.S. Constitution. Uh, and it really is time to, to call a halt on this now. This has gone on far too long, and it's gone far, far too far. Eight years now, eight years. Uh, Craig Murray, uh, Nadira Murray, uh, this has been the first time I've done this, interviewed two people simultaneously, uh, but I think it went pretty well. I think it, it was, it, I'm learning now, you know, because I'm a radio guy that likes to look at the notes and, um, like, and like pretend like I'm not looking at the notes. All right. So this has been a challenge and it this, you know, you want, you want, you want to have challenges in life. And this was, this was a challenge and, but it, I, I, we're going to have to do this again. Uh, and uh, thank you very much, Nadira Murray, Craig Murray. We're going to play uh, something uh, for you as we go out. Uh, and uh, this is something that is from Scotland. And uh, I hope you enjoy this. And this is how we're going to end the show with this music. Okay, the Royal Scott Dragoons, or the Royal Scots Dragoons, Amazing Grace. That was really a lot of fun. I mean, not fun, but it was, it was uh, interesting to, to, to do that, to have that uh, interaction with two people simultaneously, uh, Craig Murray and Nadira Murray. Uh, I'm Randy Credico, and this is uh, Randy Credico Live on the Fly, Assange Countdown to Freedom. I want to thank uh, those who were involved in this production, and that would be Anonymous Scandinavia, that crew there, out of Copenhagen, um,
Kelly Lane, the producer uh, out of North Carolina, and Jimmy Sunderland out of Lake Arrowhead, California. Um, if you'd like to support the show, um, please go to our website, Assange Countdown to Freedom. You know, I hate paneling for money here, but uh, just to, you know, enough to pay our expenses. Uh, Assange Countdown to Freedom.com. Um, and I think that's basically it, except for to say, um, uh, I hope you enjoyed today's show. And we're going to dedicate this last tune to all of the prisoners at Belmars, especially Julian Assange, but all of the prisoners, not just there, but those in Sing Sing, uh, those in Attica, those rotting in prisons around the world. Here's a little uh, Johnny Cash, and we'll talk to you soon. Thank you. San Quentin, you've been living hell to me. You blistered me since 1963. I've seen them come and go and I've seen them die. And long ago I stopped asking why. San Quentin, I hate every inch of you. You cut me and you scarred me through and through. And I'll walk out a wiser, weaker man. Mr. Congressman, you can't understand. What good do you think you do? Do you think I'll be different when you're through? You bend my heart and mind and you warp my soul. Your stone walls turn my blood a little cold. San Quentin, may you rot and burn in hell. May your walls fall and may I live to tell. May all the world forget you ever stood. And may all the world regret you did no good. San Quentin, I hate every inch of you.